Revelation chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Okay? Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So Revelation is a mysterious, enigmatic, and intimidating, and wonderful book. It truly is. In all my years being in the church, growing up in the church, and attending church as an adult, I've never heard anyone preach through the book of Revelation. Now, technically, this is not preaching through the book of Revelation, but I never heard anybody preach through the book of Revelation. Perhaps they were intimidated by it. Perhaps they just didn't want to do, try to do the hard work to try to dig into this. I have heard a few sermon series through the seven letters to the churches that you see in chapters 2 and 3. But outside of that, I've never heard anybody preach through the book of Revelation. Though I also do remember one time uh, when I was a youth, a young guy, by maybe, no, maybe about that tall, and... Um, being in a youth group and doing a, a Bible study through Book of Revelation, I just all I remember from that was being terrified by the number 144,000. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to be a number? That means 144,000, even when I was growing up, Chicago had just shy of about 2 million people. And I was like, I'm not even sure I'm going to make it. That's, that's not a lot of people, 144,000. So I remember being terrified about that. But the point is preachers shy away from preaching Revelation because, to be frank, it's a hard book to understand properly. Revelation makes heavy use of images and symbols and visions to get its message across. The interpreter needs to have a grasp on these images and symbols and visions in order to be able to decipher what Jesus, the one who is the revealer, he is the revealer, the, what Jesus is saying to us through his servant John. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that there's some secret decoder ring that you can get in the box of, you know, Wheaties or whatever. You put it on and, it, you know, you can or the, like maybe you get like the, the national treasure glasses and you look and you say, oh, now I see what revelations, you know, you do the flipping thing on the on the glasses or anything like that. I'm not saying you need to have anything like that in order to understand uh, this or this is like something privileged individuals have. But the key to understanding the book of Revelation uh, is to have a good understanding of Old Testament and New Testament prophetic and apocalyptic literature. That is, an understanding of the prophecies of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, because John is going to draw heavily from these images in these prophecies to uh, relay the visions that he sees uh, being given to him by Jesus through the angel to him. As well as also Jesus' own teaching in the Olivet Discourse, so if you're familiar with the Gospels, at the near the end of each Gospel, except for John, but the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus gives a final statement or a final message to his disciples that talk about the end. Because he, as they're going into Jerusalem for that final week, the disciples see the temple. And they're like, look, Lord, look at this beautiful temple that is here. And Jesus says, do you think this temple is beautiful? Not one stone will stand upon another stone 
uh, you know, before the time is out. And they ask, well, gee, you know, Lord, when will this time be? So he goes into that Olivet Discourse to talk about how the temple's to be destroyed, what is the sign of his coming, and what is the sign of the end of the world. So Jesus, uh, you're going to see Revelation kind of draw also from those, uh, those messages that he gives at the end of those Gospels. So in other words, while the language is highly symbolic, it would have been understood by John's late first century audience. So the symbols and images that they use, that John uses in this book, would have been more easily understood by someone who was living in that period of time because they would have been steeped in that knowledge. They would have understood the Old Testament images and those things would have come much more quickly to them. So for us, we're not as steeped in those images. We're not as familiar with those messages. So we're going to have to do a little bit of extra work to try to get uh, to a proper understanding of these images. And we'll be pointing out these connections as we go along. But I also think another reason why preachers shy away from Revelation is because uh, there has been an overly sensationalized mindset when it comes to this book. Uh, 1970, anybody familiar with Hal Lindsey? Hal Lindsey? So Hal Lindsey was a popular author, and he released a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it told of the... Uh, of the, the rapture and the tribulation and everything that was going to happen up until the time of the return of Christ. And it was also turned into a film. And then about 25 to 30 years after that, you had the works of Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, who wrote the Left Behind series. Anybody familiar with the Left Behind series? That was a hugely popular series from about 95 or so all the way through into the early 2000s. Both of these books popularized the view of Revelation and the end times that came on the scene uh, sometime around the late 19th century or middle to late 19th century. This idea that is called dispensationalism. And we'll talk about that, but maybe not as much right now. But this idea of dispensationalism was uh, a theory of the end times that was sort of new on the Christian scene. It came on, like I said, somewhere around the 19th century or so and really took hold of people in the 20th and into the 21st century. But they both sensationalized, sensationalized and dramatized a view of Revelation that reduced its riches, riches and richness of this book to sort of like headline prophecy. So you'd look in the newspaper and look, okay, what's happening in the Middle East? What's happening in Israel? What's happening with Russia and China? We need to sort of plot this on our, you know, on our graph to see where we are in the end times. So that's, that's uh, probably another reason why people shy away from it, because it's been so sensationalized with these popular works. So you might want to ask, or maybe I ask myself this all the time, why Revelation? Why did I choose to, to do this book of all the books we could have done? Um, this weird, mysterious, enigmatic book. Well, the first reason is because I'm a glutton for punishment. Just kidding, but... Anyway, but I, I, I remember Delaire's like, well, we did Revelation in family Bible study. It's like, oh, maybe we'll do Revelation. So I just, he planted the earworm in me and I, I kind of ran with it from there. But uh, no, but seriously, in all honesty, I believe that a proper understanding of Revelation will help Christians and people living even now in the 21st century uh, to see the world and the things happening in the world in its proper perspective. So I think an understanding of Revelation will help us 
get a firm foundation of what's happening now in the world, how this relates to Christians, and how we can then prepare ourselves for what will come and also for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we look around the world today and many of us see crazy things happening. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a pandemic that has shut down most of our industries, at least early on, most of everything was shut down. Things are starting to open up, but depending on where you live, you're either under heavy lockdown or you're under sort of a kind of regulated, militated kind of opening uh, where you can only open to a certain capacity. We are seeing, even now, um, riots happening in in many of our major cities. You see these riots going on that are destroying cities like Chicago, uh, 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 Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, all these cities. We are in the middle of one of the most divisive presidential elections I can ever remember, to be perfectly honest. I don't remember a time where an election has been this divisive, where people are so clearly on one side or the other, and there's very little room in the middle. We have geopolitical maneuvering by China and Russia, and we've got, we still have unrest in the Middle East. The Middle East is always going to be in a state of unrest. We can look at these things and think the world is going crazy. However, as I think we'll hopefully see, Revelation had a bead on this nearly 2,000 years ago. While it appears that the things going on in the world are unpredictable and seemingly random happenings of people and nations, in reality, what we see here is the cosmic spiritual battle that has been waging ever since the serpent deceived Eve, Adam and Eve back in the garden. It is just a continual, continuing uh, battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the forces of, uh, of God and the forces of Satan and his minions. Now, maybe that might sound a little crazy, but it's the biblical worldview. We are in a spiritual warfare. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says we are in a spiritual warfare. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. He says it is against the principalities, the powers, the rulers of this dark age. Now, it takes the form of people and things that we see in the world, but behind these things that we see in the world are spiritual forces that are in manipulating things. So Paul will say then, go on, he goes on to say, stand firm. We need to stand firm in this battle that we're in. We need to stand firm in this spiritual warfare that we're in. If you don't think we're in a spiritual warfare, you're probably already a casualty. The thing is, we're all in a spiritual warfare. And he says, stand firm, having put on the whole armor of God. Revelation details the spiritual realities behind the physical, material realities we see going on in the world today. But the third and final reason why Revelation is, as we read earlier in chapter 1, verse 3 there, it promises a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing for those who hear. There's a blessing for those who read this book. And why? Because the time is near. It is near. Now, tonight, we're going to pretty much just kind of 
do some introductory things. We're gonna, I want to kind of lay a foundation for the book of Revelation. And then, we'll, like I said, we'll expand just a little bit on these first three verses tonight. And then we'll hopefully have some time for some questions if there are any questions afterward. But let's get some introductory matters out of the way before we get into the text itself. Now, this may be technical, boring, hopefully. I, I hope it's not. But uh, much of this material is going to be necessary and foundational uh, to get an understanding and how to properly interpret this book. Now, first, and this shouldn't take too long, but we talk about the author. Now, depending on which translation of the Bible you're going, you know, you know, like for me up here, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some people may say the revelation of John or the revelation to John. Okay. But the idea here is that who wrote Revelation? It's, it's not that easy to answer because as Revelation 1.1 tells us, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you could say this is Jesus Christ. He wrote this revelation. It's the revelation that God gave to him, and then he in turn related to an angel, who then in turn gave it to John. So you've got sort of like if you're you know, into law and order or any kind of like uh, police procedure, you've got a chain of custody here. So it goes from God to Jesus to the angel, then to John. So each time they're signing along saying, okay, I've received this revelation, now I'm going to give it off to you. But this is a revelation. The ultimate author of revelation is God himself. It's God himself. He is revealing. He is giving this revelation to Jesus Christ, who in turn imparts it to an angel, a messenger, who then in turn gives it to John to write to the seven churches. But the human author, of course, is John. As we see in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John is the one who is relaying this. But we have to understand, this is not coming out of his imagination. He's not making this up. It's not like Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians or uh, you know, Peter writing his letter to the, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is John writing what he has seen. He is being given visions. He's being given prophecies to relay to these seven churches. Now, of course, we say it's John. Which John? Now, you know, there are several Johns in the Bible. Now, the most popular one is John the Apostle, who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, in favor of this view that John the Apostle wrote this is that he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the language in the Gospel and the language in those epistles matches enough to the language that is used in Revelation. Now, Revelation, of course, is different. It's not the Gospel. It's not trying to tell the story of Jesus Christ. It's not John writing to people. So the language use is going to be a little different, but the words and the, the structures follow mostly how John writes in his gospel and in his epistles. Another John who is thought to have written this book is another John, well, not thought to have written this book, just another John you see in the New Testament is John the Baptist, but obviously he couldn't have written it because he was martyred way too early to have done this. There's also John, uh, the father of Peter, who is never mentioned other than he is the father of Peter. So we don't count those two. But another person who is thought to have written Revelation is someone that they call John the Elder. Scholars call John the Elder. Now, this is, in my, in my opinion, uh, a fictitious person sort of made up to cast doubt on who I believe actually wrote Revelation, which is John the Apostle. But this John the Elder, if you just flip over a couple of 
books over to the books of 2nd and 3rd John, how those letters are addressed. And you see at the very beginning, it says the elder to the elect lady and her children, or in 3rd John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. This, this is a person believed to be John the Elder, who is different than John the Apostle. Uh, but this title, Elder, doesn't necessarily mean, it's not a title, it could just be a, a term of respect. Because by this time that we believe John wrote Revelation, he would have been an, an older man, much older man. So he could just be saying, hey look, I'm John the old guy, <laughs> or something like that. Um, as previously stated, I believe John the Apostle wrote Revelation. Uh, this has been the testimony throughout the whole history of the church, for the most part. Uh, several early church fathers have attested to the fact that John the Apostle wrote Revelation. Such church fathers as Justin Martyr, uh, Melito of Sardis, and Irenaeus of Lyons all testified to the fact that John wrote Revelation. And also, given how well known John was uh, to the first, uh, first century church, he probably didn't really need to identify himself other than, hey, I'm John. They probably would have known who John was just by saying, I'm John. It's like, oh, that John. Yeah, that John. Mm-hmm. Now, am I certain of this? No, I'm not certain of this. I don't have 100% certainty that John the Apostle wrote it. This is just my belief based on what I've been able to read and understand from the literature. Uh, but I am beyond a reasonable doubt pretty sure that this was John the Apostle. Second thing to note here is the date of writing. Now, normally, when we consider introductory material regarding a book, the date of writing, while interesting in giving some kind of historical context and background to the letter, really doesn't play a major role in how we understand uh, a New Testament book. But the case is not so with the book of Revelation. There are two schools of thought regarding when it was written. There's an early date and a late date. And depending on which one you, which camp you fall into will largely color how you understand the book of Revelation. So the first is the early date. Those who advocate for an early writing of Revelation will say that it was written before 70 AD. Now, anybody here know what special event happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem burned. Yeah, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans came in and basically just wiped Jerusalem out to the ground. So some people think that it was written before then, sometime during the reign of Nero in between 54 and 68. That's when he reigned, 54 to 68 AD. But they say that it it was written probably just before the fall of Jerusalem in the temple. And those who favor this view will say, well, what does it say here? You know, at the end of verse 3, we say, for the time is near. So for John writing to, to a person Uh, He's saying, look, the things that are in this book, they're going to happen soon. The time is near. So why wouldn't, you know, you would have uh, an apocalyptic event like the destruction of Jerusalem happen so shortly after the writing that would kind of make sense. The time is near. You're going to have this judgment event happen. It would make sense that it was written before 70 A.D. Also, some scholars will argue that the book of Revelation doesn't make sense if it was written after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because there's a section in chapter 11 that talks about the holy city, it talks about the temple, and people will say, well, 
it would have to have been written during a time when the temple still existed because why would they reference it? And then also this, the visions that you see in here of the beast in Revelation 13 all seem to be pointing to Nero as this sort of figure of the beast and the Antichrist and all these things. So all of them will say, all these arguments put together, people will say, well, this, Revelation must have been written before 70 AD during the reign of Nero. Now the other school, the later date, uh, says sometime around 95 AD during the reign of another emperor called Domitian, or Domit- yeah, Domitian, 81 through 96 AD was when he reigned. In favor of this view, uh, the early church father, Irenaeus, wrote a book. Uh, his work was against heresies, and in that book he said that John had his revelation near the end of the reign of Domitian, which would have to put it somewhere late in the first century. Another argument in favor of the late date is that the condition of the churches that you see in Revelation 2 and 3, when John writes to the seven churches, he says that the conditions of those churches and the things that they're facing only make sense in a later first century kind of time frame. And then, of course, in Revelation 11, which talks about the destruction of the holy city, uh, people who favor a later date says it does not have to mean the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., And then finally, references and visions that relate to Nero and the destruction of Jerusalem, though in the past, as of the writing, are sort of prototypical. They're sort of symbolic of things that will be returning and reoccurring throughout the entire period of the church age. Now, I've given you two views, which is right. Again, I don't know with 100% certainty. We have to be okay with that. But I favor a late date, and that is the majority view of of Christians throughout history is a later date for Revelation near the end of the first century. I believe this makes the most best sense of Revelation, and I believe it leads one to a proper understanding of its contents. Third thing to look at here as far as introductory is genre. Now, again, normally when we talk about Gospels, when we talk about New Testament letters, genre doesn't really play all that much of a role. It's just, you know, New Testament letter, it's a letter. Okay, that's the genre. It's a letter. What's the big deal? But here, the book of Revelation is unique in that it claims at least three literary genres, even in its opening words. The first is apocalypse or apocalyptic. The word that you see there, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Greek, that word is apocalypsis, which we get the word apocalyptic from. Now, the word just literally means a revelation, a revealing, a making known of something. But apocalyptic is an actual literary genre. Now, when we see this word, we think of something like cataclysmic destruction, right? The apocalypse is coming. That means, you know, something bad is happening. The world is going to be destroyed and whatever. That's how we get our modern understanding of apocalypse from the book of Revelation. But the word, like I said, just means an unveiling, a revelation, a disclosure. And that's what's happening in Revelation. It is a disclosure. It is an unveiling of things that will happen soon and take place during the return, uh, during the period leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the second uh, genre that it claims is prophetic. You see this here in verse um, 3, where it says, Blessed is the one who hears, uh, reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy. In several places throughout the book, the book identifies itself as prophetic, as a prophecy. 
And now, again, we think of prophecy. We typically think it, it's something that tells future events. So if I'm prof- prophesying something, I'm going to prophesy that something that happens in the future. And that is part of prophecy. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament usage of the prophetic uh, genre, uh, the prophet was also a sort of prosecutor of God. The prophet was one who would come in the, in the name of God and present sort of God's complaint against his people for disobeying his word. So the prophet often brought words of warning, words of judgment. So the, you know, this idea of you know, telling the future is like, well, it's basically like, you don't clean up your ways, God is going to come and he's going to destroy you or he's going to send you off into exile. So then people are like, oh, we better do something about this. And then, you know, that, and it's like, okay, well, if you turn and go back to the Lord, then you will be blessed. That's, that's kind of what goes on there. So you have uh, prophetic oracles that would, element, uh, that would detail elements of future judgment, but also elements of future blessing to come. The restoration and hopes of for, the hopes and fortunes of God's people. And we see these elements in Revelation as well. The third genre is epistle or a letter. This book takes uh, aspects of first century letter writing. You have a greeting that we see here in verse chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. A body that goes from chapter 1, verse 9, all the way to 22, verse 5. And then sort of like a final words and greeting uh, leading on from chapter 22, verse 6 to the end of that chapter. In fact, if you look at verse 4, where it says here, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. That it sounds like a way a New Testament letter would open. You know, Paul would say, hey, I'm Paul. I'm writing to the church of Rome, grace and peace to you, so on and so forth. Now, all three of these aspects are present in Revelation. You have apocalyptic, you have prophetic, and you have epistolary or letter writing. But the overarching genre that you see here really that really controls the book is that of apocalyptic or maybe apocalyptic prophecy might be a better way to say it. Now, this idea, this was a genre of writing that was popularized during the Jews uh, during those four centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The apocalyptic was very popular, sort of like, you know, we just talked about the late great planet Earth and left behind was really popular just, you know, not so many years ago. Well, this type of writing was very popular during that intertestamental period uh, between the Old and New Testaments. Now, there are some early predecessors of these Old Testament type of apocalyptic books. We mentioned three of them already. Ezekiel is one, Daniel is another one, and Zechariah is a third. Now, apocalyptic literature made heavy use of symbols and visions and signs, which draw heavily from previous Old Testament writings. And the idea behind this is that John's readers would hear these visions, would hear these symbols, and, and then they would be, would be reminded of what was said before in the Old Testament. So therefore, the first rule in interpreting apocalyptic literature is to not interpret the symbols literally. Okay? To not interpret the symbols literally. Um, and to, also not to interpret them from a 21st century point of view. That's one of the things that late great planet Earth and Left Behind fell into the trap of, which is they see these visions and they try to take these visions and then slap them onto sort of 20th century or 21st century concepts. So, you know, the great locust plague was like, well, these are, these are attack helicopters or something like that. It's like 
that would not have made any sense at all to any of John's original audience. They were like, what do you mean attack helicopters? What's a helicopter? I mean, that's kind of what they would be thinking. So we need to resist this urge to try to take these symbols and images and try to put them into a 21st century point of view. In other words, the bottom line is this. If our interpretation wouldn't make sense to a first century person and a first century audience to whom John wrote, then our interpretation is more than likely wrong. It's more than likely off the mark. Okay. Now we're going to go on to some schools of interpretation. There are basically four ways to interpret the book of Revelation. And we're going to just go through them not, you know, very briefly here. Uh, the first is, now, there's a second handout too, by the way. So the second handout, I apologize for the graininess on it, but it's got four pictures. I pulled these pictures out of a study Bible because they have nice little diagrams that kind of help to explain these schools of interpretation on it. Um, so, you know, again, I apologize for the grainy quality of the copy, but uh, if your glasses are pretty good, uh, then you might be able to under, you know, see what they're saying there. But the historicism school basically understands the literary order of the visions. Now, the visions start in chapter 4, verse 1, because you've got this opening, and then you've got John writes these letters to these seven churches. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he hears a voice, and the voice tells him to come up. And he says, I was caught up in the spirit, and I was brought into the heavenly throne room. And then from that point on, all the way to the, uh, to the end of, or like somewhere in the middle of chapter 20, it's a series of visions that John has. Okay, so these schools of interpretation are meant to explain how do we see these series of visions that John has from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 20, verse 6. Now, the historicist school understands the literary order of these visions to symbolize the chronological order of historical events that span the entire period from the apostolic church to the return of Christ. So everything that happens here is just sort of explaining just periods of history throughout the church. Okay? That's a historicist school. The futurist school has two flavors, and one of them is the much more popular flavor. But the futurist school, basically, uh, the two flavors are historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. And we'll hold off discussion on the millennium uh, to a later date. But regardless of which view you take here, both of these views see the events depicted from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 20 as all in the future, even from our point of view, all in the future. Okay? So in other words, anything that you see in chapter 4 through, through chapter 20, none of that has taken place yet. It's all in the future. You know, of course, you have those, like I said, there's historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Uh, they're on those uh, diagrams there. Basically, the difference is that dispensationalism adds a rapture. It adds a seven-year tribulation period where the church has been taken out. So all that's left are uh, unbelievers. And then during that period, Jews are reconverted during this seven-year period. And then at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, Christ returns. And then the Jews and all people who have come to faith in Christ during that tribulation period are then ushered into the kingdom. The saints who were the church who was brought, brought out because of the rapture will come down and descend with Christ and will rule with him during this millennial period. 
And then at the end of the millennial period, there'll be another revolt. And at the end of that revolt, Satan is destroyed, etc., etc., etc. Then you go on to the eternal state. The, the other premillennial view basically just eliminates the rapture and the tribulation. It's just kind of one long period there. Another view is a view called preterism, which comes from a Latin word that means before or you know, in the time before. And again, there's two flavors. One flavor is, uh, to use a German word, verboten. Okay? <laughs> it's not to be believed because there's, it's a full preterist view. The full preterist view says that everything that happened in the book of Revelation, even the return of Christ, has already happened. It happened and it was culminated in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Now again, remember when I talked about the date of writing. The date of writing can strongly influence how you interpret the book. Well, if you believe there's an early date of writing of Revelation, you might also be tempted to fall into a full preterist camp or maybe a partial preterist camp. But the full preterist camp would see all the things happening uh, that they've already happened in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, it's heretical. This view, full preterist view of Revelation is heretical. It's heretical because of three things. It denies a future return of Jesus Christ, which we believe. Our creeds talk about that. The Apostles' Creed talks about that. Nicene Creed talks about that. Our confessions talk about that. It, re- it denies a future resurrection of all believers. Again, our creeds and confessions all talk about that. And it denies a future renewal and recreation of the heavens and the earth. All of these things are cardinal truths that the Christian believes. That, that Christ will return at the end of the age. That believers will be resurrected and will, will go into glory with him. And that we will enter into a new creation, new heavens and a new earth, which will come down from heaven and we will rule and reign with him forever. The full preterist view denies all that. So it's not a Christian view. Now the other view, a partial preterist view, takes a view that most of the events in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled, except, of course, for those three things I mentioned, the return of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and the new heavens and the new earth. The fourth and final one is idealism. This view understands the events in Revelation 4 through Revelation 20 as being symbolic of the, co- the conflict between Christ and his church on the one hand and Satan and his forces on the other hand, all the way from the apostolic age to the return of Christ. So these visions then depict not specific events that are happening. In other words, you don't look at these visions and try to tie, okay, well, okay, this seal talks about this. That must have happened in 550 AD. Okay, we can mark that off the checklist and go on to the next bit. No, they, they don't depict specific, specific events, but ongoing repeated principles and patterns that you see in spiritual warfare. These visions and symbols are operative all throughout the church age and and may have repeated embodiments, so to speak. So in other words, we don't look for a antichrist, a single person, the antichrist. But there are many antichrists that you see, many antichrist-type figures, many beast-like type figures. Now, Nero is sort of like the archetypal beast, if you want to call it that, but there are other beast-type figures that you would see throughout history. That's the idea of the idealist. It's not, we're not looking for a specific one-to-one correlation between 
vision and something that happened in history. Um, in other words, then these visions provide complementary perspectives on the church age rather than a chronological description of the church age. And then a particular feature that you see that is used in Revelation is that of recapitulation. Okay, recapitulation. In other words, Revelation will talk about something and then it will go off and do something else and it will come back and kind of talk about that something again but from a different perspective. One way to, to think about this is as a sports fan, as a person who used to watch football when football was being played, not sure if we're ever going to – well, I guess the season's supposed to start next week for the NFL. I know it doesn't do the Nebraska fans any good. But anyway, you see a particular football game, right? And you see a play. It's a great play. And what they do is they show you the instant replay. Now, they'll show you the instant replay from the sideline view. Maybe they'll show you the instant replay from the end zone view. Maybe they'll show you the instant replay from the overhead camera that swings in and kind of gets that view. So you get these multiple perspectives of the same play. Okay, it's the same thing, but you're seeing different things because the camera view is different. If you see the end zone view, you might see the blocking schemes a little different. If you see the overhead cam, you might see how the, 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 the running back stiff-armed a guy or whatever, or how you know, the fullback cleared away or whatever, however it goes. The point is when you see recapitulation in Revelation, is these series of visions are telling the same period of time, the church age, from the time that Christ ascended to heaven to the time he returns, but they're looking at it from different angles and maybe focusing as they get closer to the end of the book, they may be focusing on more of the end of it, but this whole thing is that you see these things kind of over and over again, repeating and, and sort of emphasizing and highlighting different aspects of this church period. I mean, it's the same reason why you have four Gospels. Why do we have four Gospels? Well, the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus Christ from four different perspectives that are complementary. They all tell the same story, but they highlight different things. Matthew is trying to tell you Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Luke is trying to tell you that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, who is descended not just from Abraham and David, but also all the way up to Adam. John wants to tell you that he is the exalted, eternal word that became incarnate. Mark wants to tell you that he is the suffering servant. So you've got all of these pictures of Jesus, slightly different, but they all tell the same story. Same thing is going on in Revelation. Another thing that you'll see that plays an important role in Revelation is that of numbers. Numbers play an important role. One such number is the number seven which to the Jewish mind, the number seven denoted completeness or fullness or perfection. And this idea, you see these, there's seven cycles here. You've got the seven letters to the seven churches. You've got uh, seven cycles of judgment in the book. And they're all, like I said, telling the same, uh, they're showing you the same period of time, the entire church age. These cycles don't overlap perfectly. Uh, but there's a large degree of overlap and perhaps, like I said, focusing more on the future in the later cycles than on the earlier cycles. Now, again, which interpretive grid is correct? Personally, I think, in my opinion, the, a, a view that sees the idealist is the most correct. But there are aspects of the others that are also sort of drawn in here as well. I mean, there are things that are future. There are things that sort of show you the pattern of history throughout the church age. There are things that, are, that have happened in the past. Uh, but I think the idealist view gives you the best uh, understanding of how 
all of these things fit together. So I would say I'm probably more of a mainly idealist kind of hybrid type of guy. Now that's a lot of material to consume here, but one thing I do want to say is that really Revelation, even though it's mysterious, enigmatic, kind of a weird, fantastic book, is also really not that hard to understand in a, in a way, okay? It is hard to understand in one perspective, but it's not really that hard to understand from another perspective. There's a story of uh, some seminary students who were playing basketball in a gym, and they were done with their basketball game, and they went and they left the gym, and these seminary students came across a janitor or custodian who was reading the book of Revelation. And the seminary students looked at this, this custodian and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, yeah, of course I do. Jesus wins. That's what... The, <laughs> That's what I'm, you know, that's how Revela- that's what Revelation is about. And that's what the book of Revelation truly is about. It, it was given to John to deliver to seven first century churches to warn them of things that must soon take place. These churches that you see in Revelation 2, chapters 2 and 3, are real churches. They're real churches, but they also represent churches throughout the entire history of the church age. There are churches that are like the church in Ephesus. There are churches like the church in Laodicea. There are churches like the church in Philadelphia. These are real churches, but you know, if you look at a map of Asia Minor, there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Why these seven churches? Because they were sort of symbolic and representative of churches that you see all throughout the church age. But these are real churches, uh, and, and many of the things that, that attack the church from within and without are also things that attack our church today from within and from without. And Revelation was written to encourage Christians of all ages to persevere, to stand firm, to remain faithful, to trust in the victory of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the church is engaged in spiritual warfare. The devil and his minions are attacking the church with persecution Now, we're not being persecuted here in North America that much, maybe marginalized, maybe ridiculed, but we're not being attacked for our faith. We're not being harmed physically or killed for our faith, but there are churches in the world that are. Churches in China, churches in the Middle East, they can't openly worship for fear of their lives. The the devil and his minions are attacking the church with false teaching. How many churches do you know uh, have lost the gospel? have just lost the gospel. They're preaching social justice. They're preaching whatever that tickles your ears so that you listen and you're like, oh, this is interesting. I think I'll come in and listen to this. The church is also being attacked by false teaching. The church is also being attacked by enticement to material wealth, the health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it. You know, if you have enough faith, you'll be rich enough. If you're not rich enough, If you don't have that Cadillac or that Lexus or whatever, you're not praying hard enough. You don't have enough faith. And of course, the church is being attacked with the temptation to try to win over cultural approval. I mean, the church, you know, the culture is really pushing hard. Now, this is probably where the church in the United States, church in North America, maybe church in the West falls uh, hardest is on either material wealth or cultural approval. I mean, who wants to honestly, I mean, I don't want to go out there and say things that offend people, but the problem is the truth can be offensive. You don't have to say it offensively, but the truth can be offensive. 
I mean, anytime you make an exclusive claim to anything, it's going to offend somebody. But that's, that's what it is. And if, you, if you're tempted by trying to win cultural approval, you may not speak the truth, which is what the church is oftentimes um, tempted to not do. However, Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, and his resurrection, has defeated the devil permanently. The devil is done. He's been defeated. I like to use this illustration a lot. You have the, the difference between D-Day and V-Day. People who remember World War II or, who are, or at least know the history of World War II, if you, know, if you look at it from uh, the perspective of having on the other side of it, D-Day was the decisive battle in World War II. The war was effectively over on D-Day. We broke the back of the Axis powers on D-Day, but they were not defeated yet. I mean, they were not totally defeated yet. And there was much fighting. There was at least another year of fighting. And that fighting, some of that fighting was the most fierce fighting in the war because Germany knew its days were numbered and they were trying, fighting desperately to try to, to, try to stave off impending defeat. The same way the devil is a defeated enemy. He is in his death throes, but that makes him much more dangerous. That makes him much more dangerous. And the book of Revelation is our confirmation that Jesus Christ is victorious, and decisively so. He will return to bring final judgment for his enemies and vindication for his people. Now, briefly, we're just going to look at these first three verses that we read earlier in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. Now, again, we see here that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this could be understood in two senses. Uh, It is a revelation about Jesus Christ. In other words, the visions that we will see in the coming weeks will show how Jesus Christ has won the decisive victory over sin and death and has been given authority to judge the world and uh, to judge the whole world. Jesus Christ will bring final judgment. Jesus Christ will vindicate his people. Jesus Christ will remake all things. Jesus Christ will reign with his people for all eternity. This is a revelation about Jesus Christ. But it is also Jesus Christ's revelation. It is a revelation that he himself is giving to John. As we saw in verse 1, God gave this revelation to Jesus who in turn gave it to an angel, who in turn gave it to his servant, John. And the time is ripe for this revelation, this disclosure, this unveiling. The time is near. And of course, it is fitting that Revelation is the last book of the Bible. If you consider how the Bible or the New Testament is structured as a whole, you have the four Gospels and Acts, which kind of give you the the history of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, his life and works, his death and resurrection, the book of Acts details the history of the early church, the, his first disciples who took what he taught and spread the gospel throughout the, the early world there and converted a huge number of people. I mean, Pentecost Sunday saw 3,000 people converted on one day. Then you have 21 letters, epistles, that explain the theological and practical significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, you have Revelation, which prepares the church for the struggles that she's going to face until Christ returns. When he returns to consummate all things at the end, at the end of the age. In effect, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving to John 
the playbook of the enemy. He's giving to John the playbook of the enemy. Again, using a sports metaphor, I would imagine uh, Nebraska Husker fans would just love it if they could get like Ohio State's playbook or Iowa's playbook or, or whatever. You know, just pick your worst rival. If you can get their playbook, I mean, you could study their playbook and how they call their plays. You would think you could just crush them because you would know what they're going to do before they're going to do it. That's the idea here. John is giving or Jesus is giving to the church Satan's playbook. This is how Satan is going to attack you. This is what he's going to do throughout this age. And this is what I'm going to do to crush his head. Right? That was the promise given back in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it. That's why he gives this revelation. Secondly, in verse 2, we learn here that John is giving his full disclosure. John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony to all the things that he saw. He's giving, he's giving the churches everything he saw. He says, look, Jesus gave me this revelation. I'm going to give it all to you. This is going to be one huge data dump of visions and, and signs and symbols, etc. I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then third, in verse 3, we get a benediction, a word of blessing. The one who reads will be blessed. The one who hears will be blessed. But of course, it's not just hearing and reading that brings the blessing. It is keeping of the words of this prophecy. And of course, the idea of keeping is the idea of being obedient. That's what he says in these letters. Again, these seven letters to the churches that we'll look at shortly, Lord willing. At the end of each letter, he says, to the one who perseveres, to the one who perseveres, etc., 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 this idea of being obedient. And why? Because he says the time is near. The time is near. There's a parable that Jesus tells again in the Olivet Discourse, which is his own revelation of his return. And in Mark 13, verses 32 to 37, you don't need to turn there. But in that parable, he says his return will be like a man who goes to a far country and tells his servants to work and keep watch. Work and keep watch while I'm away. And then the moral of the story is that if we don't work and keep watch when Christ returns, what is he going to do? He's going to throw that worthless servant out. That worthless servant is going to be punished for not watching and not keeping alert and not doing work. We don't want him to come home and find us sleeping. So watch for the time is near. Now, how near can it really be? I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. How near is near? Well, I'll tell you this. It's 2,000 years nearer than it was when it was originally written, right? I mean, we are, each day is a day closer to this. And with that, I will close. I have nothing else. If there are any questions that people have, I will entertain questions. If not, you can save questions for next time. Again, we'll meet in two weeks, but just... Just take time now if there are any questions or comments or, or anything uh, that you have on your mind.